And we welcome you to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am really happy to be sitting opposite a very talented Carthage student by the name of Emma Swain. She is a senior class of 2020, and she is a double major in music theater and English. And uh, the reason Emma Swain is visiting us on the morning show today is because of a very gratifying success that she has recently experienced. A play that she has written titled Wiretaps has been selected for a public reading at the upcoming Region 3 Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival in Madison, uh, which is coming up in the next few days. This is a play that Emma wrote back in the spring of, ni- of 2019, and it actually has already been selected for a, what amounts to a professional staged reading that we will hear a little bit about. So uh, this is a, an intriguing play that has already attracted uh, quite a, a great deal of attention. And uh, uh, so I'm really excited for the chance to uh, bring Emma Swain into our studios to talk about uh, this this undertaking, uh, about her, her uh young, blossoming career as a writer, and uh, what she hopes to do from here. Emma Swain, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you. Great to have you here. So before you came to Carthage, you grew up in Grays Lake, Illinois, so yes. not too far far from here. Tell us a little bit about the things that interested you and what ultimately led you to come to Carthage. Um, well, yeah, I'm from, I'm from Grays Lake, Illinois, which is a little bit south of Carthage. Um, I have a sister, a younger sister named Hazel. Um, I have two dogs. They're wonderful uh, when they're not chewing up things. <laughs> um, uh, but I've always, I've always been a writer. Um, when I was like seven or eight, I wrote an American Girl play with my best friend Katie at mm. the time, and we performed it for all of our friends and family, and they sat through it very grudgingly. Um, <laughs> but <clears throat> I've like I've always written things as long as I can remember. I've kept a journal for a really long time, and it's just kind of in my nature to put things down on paper because it's a really good way to process my thoughts and, like, keep everything straight. Um, And uh, I think playwriting was just a natural, like, next step in my writing career for me, I guess. Um, You know, I never really realized that's where I was heading, but now that I'm here, it feels really, really right. Great. And it sounds like Carthage (laughs) has been a place where you've been able to explore that to some extent. Yeah, yeah, Carthage has been really great. I really like... Um, how flexible it is at Carthage because I looked at some conservatory programs when I was con- like when I was originally auditioning for things I was looking at a music theater BFA or a BA which are a little bit different based on which program you go to but I ultimately decided on Carthage because it was it had stringent training and really wonderful faculty which I knew where I knew I would learn a lot from them um, but they also had quite a bit of flexibility so I knew that I could add things as I moved forward in my career, and it wouldn't interfere with my training, it would just supplement it. Whereas, like, if I went to Boston Conservatory, for example, I would just be doing music theater for four years and nothing else. Mm. So I really like that I can do everything at Carthage. You know, I've, I've dabbled in just about every area of theater that I can. Fantastic. Let's turn back the clock for a second. So you've done a fair amount of writing from a, a fairly early age. What kind of writing have you done besides that American Girl play that you mentioned, <laughs> which sounds like would have been one of your first efforts as as a budding playwright? Yeah. But otherwise, have you done just about every kind of creative writing that there is, or 
or by and large has has the writing of plays been of particular interest to you? Um, playwriting is something I've really gotten into in the past couple of years. Uh, it was always it was something that I I knew existed when I was younger. Um, but it was also always kind of like a whoa I can't you know I can't touch that that's too hard that's too insane. Um, so I never really touched it besides that American Girl play. Uh, I. I've taken a lot of creative writing classes over the years just because I really like them. Um, I took one uh, at Carthage with Professor Shannon Brennan. Uh, that was wonderful. And we did all sorts of creative writing from like haiku to novel to short story to like memory recrafting, which is this really cool thing where you take a memory that you think you have and you break it down and like change parts of it to see how it reshapes itself. Um, mm. So I've done everything. I'm... I'm about 100 pages into a novel that I'm writing, which I'm considering revamping into a play at this point, but mm. <laughs> it's it exists. Um, yeah, so I've, I've done a lot of different stuff. My Google Drive is full of everything that you could possibly <laughs> imagine, most of which will probably never see the light of day. <laughs> That's all right. I mean, it all makes a difference. It all contributes right. in one way or another. So what do you think it is about playwriting, writing plays that is of particular interest, in what way is that an especially good fit for you? And what is it about writing plays that maybe feels more right to you than some of these other writing exploits? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I, I mean, as, I'm, as I looked back at short stories that I'd written and at the novel that I'm writing, um, and like poetry and things, I always got hung up on dialogue and on voices and like hearing what each individual person sounded like. And I, I mean, I, John McClay has told me I have a knack, knack for dialogue and I took that as a huge compliment, but I also like, I thought about it the next day and I was like, that's correct. You know, I, I replay conversations that I hear in my head all the time. You know, I'll, I'll be walking down campus drive at Carthage and I'll just I'll just be listening to someone and it'll stick in my head and I'll replay it over and over throughout the day and I'm like, "Where did that come from?" you know? And mm. then I'm like, "Oh, it, I heard it on campus drive." Mm. So, it, dialogue, spoken word, like just the way that people speak has always been something that's that's really stuck with me. Um, and plays, you know, are all dialogue and a few stage directions, but you know, mostly dialogue. That's what the audience sees and hears. And that's what I'm able to put on the page. And like for me, being able to really get down to just what people are saying and what they aren't saying, like without the complications that a novel brings in or that a short story brings in with like exposition and setting and like having to have beautiful writing or not beautiful writing, like just stripping down to the dialogue is really refreshing for me. And I, I really mm. like how it helps you get to the heart of the character faster. Very good. So is that something that you very formally have studied at Carthage? I no. mean, so so there's not uh, there's not a course in playwriting. That... There is a course at playwriting at Carth in playwriting at Carthage. There is not a major yet. I hope to help influence that <laughs> um, or a, or a track or an emphasis of some kind. Um, but I've kind of I've kind of made my own tracks. I added an English major sophomore year um, at Carthage, and that's been really helpful because I've just taken a lot of different English classes that all teach you to write better. Um, there is a playwriting course taught by Marcella Kearns that I'm taking in the spring. 
Oh, okay. After the fact. So after, yeah, fact. after I've written a lot of plays already. But it'll be really cool to, to work with other students and to learn from Professor Kearns because she's, I've I've only met her once or twice, but I've heard really wonderful things about her. And it's, it's always a great thing to be able to work with other playwrights, work with other writers, work with other actors even, um, and just hear what they think of your writing. Yeah. So ahead of us talking about Wiretaps, which is your most, I assume, your most recent play and the one that uh, has attracted the, all of this exciting attention, <laughs> what, what plays have you written before Wiretaps? And I assume all of those you wrote while you were at Carthage. I mean, that recently, is that right? Yes. Uh, my first play that I finished was called Second Drafts, um, and I wrote that uh, I st- well, I started it in Professor Brennan's creative writing class, and then I finished it over the course of, like, the next year. And then last spring, uh, Joshua Brian Mal- uh, Maloney, who's a directing major at Carthage, he uh, per- not performed, um, directed a staged reading of it at Carthage with a bunch of different Carthage theater students. Um, and that was really, really cool for me to, like, actually hear my words out loud because it's one thing to write them down on the page and hear them in your head mm. but when someone else takes them and like puts their own interpretive spin on them it's it's like a whole new kind of life that it breathes into the words um and so that was the first one and then I wrote wiretaps and in between I've been working on a few different projects I have three other scripts that I'm that I have like in progress at the moment um, one of them is called They Call Me Isabella. That's a tentative working title, mm. subject to change. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but that's a, it's a, it's kind of a utopian, dystopian thing. It's set mm. in a futuristic world that's not so different from ours, but um, it's about this family that lives in a community where parents are only allowed to have one female child due to limited resources. Mm. Um, and this family has twins, girl, uh, female twins. And so they decide to keep both of the children and the children play one person. Um, and it's a little bit absurd in some moments, but I like that um, because it, it makes you think about what it like, what's the heart at this issue, actually. You know, it's not just about like having one female child. It's about like the relationship between sisters and like the bond of child to parent. And so I'm working on that. Um, mm, hopefully it'll be finished by the summer. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm also writing. Uh, I'm writing a play um, based on my grandmother's experiences in uh, Holland after World War II. Because my grandparents, my gr- my family is German, um, and both of my mother's parents grew up in Berlin during World War II, um, and experienced the war and the battles of Berlin and all of that trauma. And then my grandmother was placed into a foster care program in Holland after the war to recover and recuperate because, you know, Berlin was a mess. Um, And she kept a diary during that time. So I'm writing a play based on her diary. Wow. Which is just really surreal and incredible and, yeah, something that I hope will will be a great honor and a great tribute to my grandmother, who is still living, which Mm. is also a boon because I can talk to her about it. (laughs) Yeah. So as you have grappled with this really intriguing genre of... of of playwriting, what have you found to be kind of the biggest challenges uh, in this kind of writing versus <laughs> writing a novel or writing poetry or other kinds of, of writing? Maybe another way to ask the question is, what are the pitfalls mm. uh, as one is writing a play or the things that you think are important to keep in mind or that you try to really consciously keep in mind as you are 
crafting a play? The biggest problem for me is once it's out of my hands, it's out of my hands. You know, a play mm. is a completely different piece of writing in that people take it and do things with it. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's a play. They play with it. They don't just read it. Right. Um, or theoretically, hopefully. Mm. <laughs> um, so once, you know, once I've put the words on paper and I've just kind of dealing with this weird kind of anxiety at the moment because I just submitted my final revisions for the Kennedy Center reading in Madison and I you know I had to say this is the final version for this performance I can't change anything after this mm. um and so it's it's really difficult as a playwright not to impose your vision on the words and on the actors you know I'll be in the room with the director and with the actors as they're rehearsing it and I'm going to offer some maybe some guidance if like things are going completely off course or you know if they have questions but on the whole it's not my job my job is to just put the words out there um and something that I that I struggled with when I was writing my first play that Josh, um, who directed Second Drafts last spring, helped a lot with, was stage directions. That I would write out all of these stage directions that I thought that that I thought were appropriate because they were, you know, that's what was happening in my head. And I'm like, oh, this is really cool. Like, like here's some here's some thoughts that I have for the actors as they're going through this play. But then I realized, you know, I'm, I'm imposing my own vision on this, whereas mm. it's just my job to give them the words to say. And they're actors. They'll pull it out and, you know, they'll, they'll put their own interpretation on that. Um, and part of that is, you know, because I'm an actor as well as a playwright, I'm like, oh, I see how this moment could go. Here you go. Here's mm. my line reading. <laughs> right, right. But then as an actor, I also realize how frustrating that is and how much I need to take a step back and just give them the words. Interesting. So as an actor, you realize that giving freedom is is one of the best things a playwright can do right. not just for the sake of the actors but really for the sake of the play itself yeah yeah this this kind of dual thing that i've got going on of like being an actor and a playwright is both a gift and a little bit of a curse <laughs> interesting for those of you just joining us i'm speaking with emma swain who is a senior at carthage college a double major in music theater and english and uh we are here because of a play that she has written called Wiretaps, which has been uh, selected for a, a reading at the Region 3 Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival uh, coming up in Madison in just a few days. And uh, so we're going to turn to this particular play that uh, Emma Swain has written and find out a little bit more about what inspired the story and uh, how it ultimately took shape. And by the way, am I correct in Madison in saying that it's going to receive a a public reading or staged re I mean what kind of a performance is this going to be in Madison Yes it's a, it's a staged reading I'm pretty sure it's public I haven't heard <laughs> um, I know it's public to anyone registered at the festival so for all intents and purposes it should be Right um, but yes it is a staged reading And explain to our listeners who maybe have never been to a staged reading <laughs> just kind of what that means versus something that's more of kind of a normal full-fledged performance of a play Sure um, so, I mean, normal performances of plays have sets and costumes and lights, and they have production values that enhance the words and, and help create the world of the play, whereas a staged reading is just focusing on the words on the page. And so the actors generally have their scripts. They're not required to be memorized. A lot of them are wonderful, and they are memorized anyway, mm. um, but they're not required to be, and it takes some of the, that pressure off. Uh, and staged readings are usually done with chairs and music stands, maybe a couple props, if they're like absolutely vital, um, like sometimes there's a gun in a script and like it's hard to, to shoot someone 
without mm. a gun. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's usually just bare bones, music stands, chairs, scripts, some actors with some basic, very basic, like suggestive costuming, um, dark colors or light colors or whatever. Uh, and it just it just focuses on the words on the page. It's really useful for playwrights. <laughs> really, right. really helpful. So tell us about the origins of this play, which again is titled Wiretaps. You wrote it back in the spring of 2019. Mm-hmm. Is that when you began working on it, or is that when it was finished? Or uh, sort of finished? Right, right. It's never really finished yeah. <laughs> until it gets published. Um, yeah, I started working on it in... Um, March, April uh, of 2019, uh, while I was in Professor Brennan, who's my English advisor, uh, incidentally, um, while I was in her queer literature and theory class, which is an English class that was also cross-listed with women and gender studies. Uh, Mm. And this was a a new class at Carthage, like completely experimental, um, studying queer, so lesbian, uh, gay, bisexual, all of those different gender identities, um, studying the theory of those identities in literature, studying how they affect us today, studying how they uh, are influenced in our culture, all of the different effects of those identities, and just learning to understand them more. Mm. Um, So I took that class uh, with a couple of my friends and uh, learned a lot. Um, I'm I'm an ally of that community, but I'm not part of that community, so it was Mm -hmm. really eye-opening for me to be in that class where we were just working so closely with that material, Um, like things written by lesbian authors, things written by gay authors. And one of our final projects in that class was to write um, some kind of creative project or a paper or just craft our own piece of literature or our own work based on what we had learned. Um, it was, it was a really intensive project, (laughs) uh, but it was wonderful. And that's, that's kind of how all of Professor Brennan's classes are, is that they make you work really hard, but you learn a lot in the course of it. Um, so I ended up writing wiretaps. Uh, it was a very, very early draft at that point, and it was only about 15 pages when I finished it for her class for the final project. But it, it was like, that was the core, the core of it happened there. Um, that I was thinking about like what it's like to reveal things about yourself, what it's like when no one is actually listening to you, what, you know, the idea of talking on the phone means that like, you know, when you're on the phone, you might be being listened on. Like Mm. someone might be listening to your phone call that's not the intended recipient. Right, yet you have no idea. I mean, there's no way to be absolutely certain of who exactly is hearing this, although we tend to think of phone calls. Uh, as much more private, right. and we just assume them to be, and they might not be. Right, know. and that's where the name Wiretaps came from, is kind of this idea of, like, we are listening in on these conversations that are happening in the script, and for anyone who doesn't know, the script is told entirely through phone conversations, so phone calls, voicemails, and text messages are the primary forms of communication. There are no face-to-face interactions in this script, so it's it's really an exploration of, of what it's like to reveal things about yourself when one, you're not sure exactly who's listening, you know, hence the idea of wiretaps and two, when no one is really listening to you at all. Hmm. So I have seen this described, maybe you described it to me this way, uh, as kind of a (coughs) coming out story, although not necessarily a coming out story in the way that we sometimes think of that, Mm -hmm. of that, term. Uh, Can you explain a little further the ways in which this either is that or somewhat resembles that, a coming out story as we 
typically think of that? Well, something that I've talked to a lot of my friends who are in the LGBTQ plus community about is the idea of coming out and what that's like and what what it means to reveal something that deeply private about yourself to someone else. Um, and so that's that's kind of the essence of, of what I think is that that's kind of what the essence of wiretaps is, in my opinion, um, is that it's a coming out story in the sense that the main character throughout it is intending to reveal something very private about themselves in the like in the course of the play. Um, but it's never explicitly stated that this is a coming out about sexuality or about gender identity. Um, it, it could be about anything private. You know, I've, when I was writing it, there were moments where I, I was like, wow, this could be, this could apply to mental health. This could apply mm. to a change in career, a change in major, uh, you know, I've planned to start a family, anything, anything huge and exciting and, and scary that you want to reveal about yourself. Um, and the, the other caveat about the script is that it's completely gender neutral. There are no gendered pronouns in it anywhere. Um, so any character can play any role. And there are some relationships in the script that would change based on gender or based on sexual identity or, you know, any of those variable categories. Um, but, the you know, so the script is... The script is a coming out story in the sense that it's about revealing something private about yourself. Right. And so what the play is really about then from the sounds of it is about that process of (laughs) self-revelation and I assume how difficult that can be Mm -hmm. or the way in which what we communicate can maybe be misunderstood or or not heard at all or overheard and misunderstood or whatever. Sounds like that's what you're focusing on rather than the thing or the characteristic that is being revealed. Right, yes. Interesting. It's about that human experience. Hmm. How many characters are we talking about? That's a little bit in flux. Um, There are eight characters written right now, uh, plus voicemail, (laughs) which is, you know, has to be a person on stage. I've stipulated that in the script because it's funny. Mm. Um, But... Most of the characters could be double cast if they wanted, if the director wanted them to be. You know, I've left it very much up to the director. And this is something uh, Neil Sharnick, who's a professor at Carthage, is directing it in Madison. Hmm. Uh, and he, we chatted on the phone a couple of days ago, and he was like, "Yeah, you've you've made it really straightforward, but also really hard." <laughs> Like I've written out clearly what the characters are, but then I, you know, I leave it up to the director. I say, no one person has to play any of these roles. You can divide them up. You can give them, like, you can double cast them. You can say, okay, you get these lines, you get these lines. Like, I'm open to all interpretations because it just makes it that much more human um, to have the director be able to play with the roles. So currently, eight characters, but, you know, liable to change based on director vision. Right. I'm curious about this matter of there being no gendered pronouns at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I think in one of the articles I, I read about the play, it was said, basically stated, this is a completely non-binary play. Yes. Where we don't really even feel like we're living in, the, in a world where either you're male or female. Right. And, and also that you are specifically <laughs> one or the other, or maybe you might make a change, but I mean mm-hmm. you are... Everybody at some point is one or the other, and you are just rejecting that that context altogether. I'm curious, though, especially about the matter of, of having no gendered pronouns whatsoever. Is it tricky to write a play in which it sounds like 
relatively ordinary people are speaking in relatively ordinary fashion, mm-hmm. or is it tricky to to write a play that doesn't sound in a sense artificial or stilted because something that we do so commonly in everyday language is is not a part of any of the communication. I guess I'm asking how challenging was it or what, <laughs> what kind of a complication was it for you to craft this play specifically with, the, with no gendered pronouns whatsoever? It was hard at first. It was really difficult because those are some that like those pronouns are something that's so ingrained in our society and in the way that we think, you know, like you you think in he and she and him and her every single day. That's just how our society works right now. Um, so when I started writing it like that, I set out with that intention, but I ended up just getting so hung up on, you know, how do I do that, that it, I didn't write anything for a while. Or I was mm. like, I'm, I'm just kind of stuck. Um, so eventually what I did is I just, I just wrote with those pronouns. And then I went back and I took them all out and I replaced them with they, them, their, or I just rewrote, like reworked the sentences so I didn't need a pronoun, period. Um, something that's helpful with that is that there's only two names in the play and they're Avery and Fallon, which are both could, you know, mm. could go either way. Um, there's one instance where a character is referred to as mom, but the mom is like in air quotations, you know, it's, it's kind of a mocking term. So it could go either way as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, once I got, once I started getting into it and started not thinking in that mindset, it got really easy actually. Like I was astonished at how quickly my brain just reworked the sentences to, to not include those pronouns. You know, I, I was just not thinking in he, she, him, her anymore. Hmm. Now, is this a play that is linear in its structure? I mean, uh, are we following a storyline? Does one thing happen and then another and then something after that and something after that? Or is this more like just different vignettes? I mean, how is it structured in that respect? It's more vignettes. They're, it's not broken down into scenes. Um, it's it's pretty clear if you read it, like, where the, the scene lines would be. Um, <clears throat> but it's it starts out with the main character making a phone call, and the phone call goes to voicemail. And that character tries unsuccessfully to call a few more times, and it doesn't work, so they call someone else, and that person picks up. And then from there, the story just kind of, like, weaves itself um and we meet different pairs of people different couplings of like phone calls and text message conversations and then at the end it cycles back to the main character who also pops up in a few different places to like provide a through line but we cycle back to the main character um and I don't I don't want to give it away (laughs) but the main character ends up having a little bit of an epiphany moment um at the end uh and so, I mean, it's it's definitely not linear, but there is a through line where you see this primary character trying to reveal something about themselves throughout the whole play. Interesting. So you, you mentioned that uh, Carthage <coughs> Theater professor Neil Sharnick is the director of this reading that's going to be taking place in, in, uh, in Madison. So uh, I assume that one of the things he has to do as director is make some choices in terms of who will play... Mm-hmm. what roles or handle what lines. And at that point, uh, is he also, in effect, making the choice that this person, uh, these lines are being read by a male or a female, or or is that not the choice that you would want made, that 
is is the matter of gender in a sense completely out of the picture? I'm not sure if I'm saying this question very clearly. I mean, one way to write this play is where nobody is gendered at all. Another is to write a play in which the genders can be whatever a director chooses to assign. Mm -hmm. Do you want genders assigned to, in terms of the people uh, uh, reciting these lines, or in a sense, do you want gender not to be a part of this at all? I, I would prefer if gender was not a part of the casting process. Um, so something that I wrote in the script or in the, the directions for the director and that Neil <laughs> talked to me about actually was I wrote, do not typecast this play. Mm. Because, uh, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with typecasting, uh-huh. but <laughs> most most directors or casting directors, they, you know, when they're casting a production of any kind, an opera, musical, play, whatever, um, they go through their their possible candidates and they say okay you look this part you look this part you look this part so I'm only going to consider you for those and that's something that happens a lot in theater and it's very frustrating Um, and that's something I wanted to completely avoid in this process so I wrote that in my script not to typecast the play but then Neil was like well here's the thing I have this gut instinct to cast this person as the as you know this character but you just told me not to typecast. So does that mean I should ignore that gut instinct and like mm. try something completely new? And I was like, well, I I mean, do, I, I'm saying don't don't typecast as in like, don't say, OK, like this is the stereotypical slot I would put you in, but still cast well. So mm. if if gender is something that that the director thinks of while they're trying to cast well and to 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 stick to my intentions and to keep like be consistent with the words of the play and the message of the play, then that's okay. You know, that's, that's part of the reason why I decided not to put any pronoun gendered pronouns in is to, to allow for that freedom. But if gender is something that becomes a hindrance to the director while they're casting, then, you know, I'd say, put it aside. It's, it's really up to them. I'm just interested to see how people play with it. (laughs) Right. I I think of two performances I've seen at Carthage that, uh, that touch on this, um, one was a performance of the musical 1776, and mm-hmm. the situation was an all-too-familiar one where there were uh, not enough guys <laughs> to cover all of those uh, founding fathers, so to speak. So, so that, that performance, <clears throat> that production at Carthage, this is many years ago now, was, was cast in a sense very gender-neutral. Uh, men and women playing uh, those, those characters mm-hmm. involved in the crafting of our of our Declaration of Independence, uh, even though, of course, in, in history, they were men. And, uh, and what was especially striking was that a couple of the strongest characters, and particularly the character who was the most uh, sort of vehemently opposed to many of Thomas Jefferson's wishes, uh, you would immediately think of that in terms of stereotypes as very much a man, and that character was cast with a woman. <laughs> and it was extraordinary, the, the impact that that had because we were, in a sense, rewriting a lot of our expectations mm-hmm. by seeing a woman portraying that character. In the same way, a few years, I think, later, uh, they did the play 12 Angry Men, but uh, retitled it 12 Angry Jurors, which I've seen done before and again for very much the same reason. And the, uh, the character... Uh, in the original play that was the angriest of all the jurors and the last holdout believing uh, the person on trial to be guilty. Uh, in Again, the most stereotypical sense of the word, the, 
least feminine of, <laughs> of any of those characters was portrayed by a woman. Uh-huh. And again, it was just incredible to have, in a sense, some of your mental assumptions rewired just by a bold choice like that being made on the mm-hmm. stage. And it sounds like that is maybe a little bit of your intention in what you are telling prospective directors about how to approach the casting of wiretaps. Right, yeah. It, a part of my decision was also influenced by the fact that I was in a play that did that kind of casting at Carthage, well, it was a musical, um, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Oh, yeah. Which was mm, two years ago? <clears throat> I don't know. It was at some point in the last four years. Right. <laughs> you know, it all runs together at one point. Right. But it was uh, directed by Tommy Novak, um, and uh, he he decided to make it all women. Um, we had a completely female cast, except for uh, the narrator who read, read some of the book lines, but, like, just at the very end, in the very beginning, um, was a male actor. Uh, but everyone else was a woman, and it, we dressed up in suits and we, we put our hair back to suggest being male. And it was really, really powerful because, you know, a big song in that show is the Brotherhood of Man. Yes. And we were like, well, you know, why just man? <laughs> so part of, part, of, part of my writing process during Wiretaps was also influenced by the fact that I was in that production, that it was very powerful for me to see what it was like when those, you know, supposed gender roles were flip-flopped and when we were like, well, what if there are no gender roles, you know? What if we're all just people? <laughs> right. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. So uh, you finished this play, in quotes, finished this play at some point mm-hmm. and then evidently submitted it to something called the New Match Collective Yes, in San Diego, California. Tell us what the New Match Collective is and your connection with them. Uh, New Match Collective is a completely women and non-binary theater group. Um, I believe that's their current billing uh, in San Diego, California. And they, they've been established for a few years now, and they're run by a woman and... Um, a couple other women are like on their executive board um, and they produce theater that celebrates diversity and inclusion and they pro- pro- excuse me produce theater um, that breaks down you know uh, previously constructed ideas of what theater should be and what plays should be so I submitted uh, wiretaps to them because <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny how it came about I'm uh, part of a Facebook group called the Official Playwrights of Facebook, which I joined a few <laughs> years ago just be- just just because I was like, oh, you know, maybe this will be useful someday. But I didn't really expect anything to come out of it because it's yeah. Facebook. Right, um, right. But they actually put quite a few submission opportunities on that page, um, like lots of different of different theater companies that are mostly smaller startups will post things and they'll say, hey, we're looking for this play, like, we're looking for a play with this param- these parameters, these actors, like, this kind of set requirement, this length. Um, and I've I've been submitting things to that group for six or seven months now. Um, and I submitted one, or I submitted wiretaps to, like, 35 different applications. And New Match Collective was the one that reached out to me in June, I believe, sometime over the summer, early summer, um, and said, hey, we're interested in doing a production of this. Would you, like, would you want to do that? And I was like, yes, absolutely, <laughs> like, <laughs> jumping at that opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, the stage reading that they did was directed by Nicole Rydell and uh, starred her wife, Tara Rydell. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly, but, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's either Rydell or Riedel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
and uh, they they did a really really great job in like helping me get it get it on its feet and see what it's like to have people read those words, especially people that I like didn't know at all. I didn't know any of these people at all before I went out there to see the production, which is completely new for me because when I did second drafts, that was surreal because it was the first time that anyone was reading my words out loud. But I knew all of those actors. And, right. and I was like, hey, I think you should say this this way. Or like, hey, that doesn't really work the way I intended it to. Um, so I had a hand in that process. Right. But when I got to California with New Match Collective, they had just done things. And I was like, oh. This is great. <laughs> wow. That would be exciting. Well, it's like, uh, and I've had this experience a couple of times of composing a piece of music that ends up not just being sung by my own church choir or by the chamber singers at Carthage, but sung by strangers mm-hmm. in some other choir, some other place that found out about the song somehow. And that's an incredible experience for anybody who creates right. anything to have it take on that kind of life. So you were given some kind of grant that allowed you to travel out to San Diego, I understand, for maybe the last couple of rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was that like? I mean, you've already said it was, for the most part, very exciting and gratifying to see what they had done. Uh, What was it like to find yourself in the position of perhaps wanting to offer suggestions? Uh, I mean, (laughs) as a college student and a neophyte playwright. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, Carthage has a, has a uh, student travel grant program where, you, where students can apply and say, hey, I want to go to this conference or I want to go do this cool creative thing that I've done. Um, and they'll grant you a certain amount of money to go travel out there. And they were very generous <laughs> in their grant and, and covered almost my entire trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I was able to be out there for the last two rehearsals and for the performance. Um, and uh, just being in the room was just incredible. It was difficult because I was sitting there wanting to, to say things, wanting to be part of the process and, like, engage. Because as an actor, that's just kind of my nature is just to say, like, ooh, I think this would be cool or this would be neat. But I, I, I didn't. I was just a fly on the wall, hmm. which in many ways was even more valuable just, just to, like, listen to what people were saying about my work and like how it was being interpreted by them without any input from me. Right. Um, it was really cool. And San Diego is beautiful and it's really warm. Yes. <laughs> it's yes, so it much is. warmer than here. <laughs> and did you end up making any uh, significant revisions in, in the play after hearing it presented in that way? Yes. So many, <laughs> so many revisions. And is it because you heard things that just didn't make sense or didn't seem clear or didn't, work like you intended them? I mean, in general, what was the nature of the revisions that you were prompted to make? Uh, It was mostly actually like adding things to the script. Um, Because when it was in San Diego, it was only about half an hour long. And it's now 45, maybe 50 minutes, um, depending on the pacing and like how the director chooses to do things in between the dialogue. but yeah, when I was when I was there, I saw a lot of a lot of things that were really wonderful. There were some things that I changed because like my thoughts didn't really translate well to the page. Um, so I made some revisions based on that. But on the whole, it was just taking what those actors had given me and what that director had given me and saying, great, I want to take this and run further with it. And that's actually the biggest piece of feedback that I got in San Diego from mm. people that came to see the reading was they were like, I wanted more. Like it was so short. I mm. it was over too soon. Add more. <laughs> right. So I, I I just took some of the conversation, some of the dialogue, and expanded it further. Put more more depth into the characters and played with it. Mm. 
We're speaking with Emma Swain, a Carthage senior, about her play Wiretaps, which is about to receive a public reading at the Region 3 uh, Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival in Madison. I know that a lot of people had a, a real hand in helping you shape this play, uh, including some of your schoolmates who uh, read, read it with you and uh, probably offered uh, advice and so on. I know that someone who was a very special part of the shaping of Wiretaps uh, was a student uh, named Ray Watson. Uh, I want you to tell our listeners about Ray and the role that Ray played in Wiretaps becoming a reality. Yeah, Ray, um, Ray was a friend of mine. We were never incredibly close, um, but we did... We went. We had several classes together. Uh, we took play production uh, one this fall together, and and just you know struggled with saws and nails and screws. And Ray was always an expert at it, and I just kind of sat there being scared of the saws. Um, <laughs> but uh, we also did a couple productions together, and Ray was was the kind of person who would just always kind of jump in and be game for just about anything. Um, and one day I was sitting in uh, Einstein's Bagels across from the library on campus, and uh, I finished one of the scenes of Wiretaps, and it was actually the last scene uh, between the main character and their significant other. Well, that's how I interpret it, but the main character and their scene partner. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, I'm done. Like, I, I have the scene finished. And Ray and some other uh, theater students just happened to be sitting nearby. And I went over and I was like, hi, can I commandeer you to read part of my play? Mm. <laughs> and they they were down. So I so Ray volunteered and one other person volunteered. That I, tra- I think this person transferred. I don't remember their name, unfortunately. Um, but Ray was, Ray was the first person to to read that character's words out loud. Mm. Um, and it was really surreal because I, like, I remember sitting in Einstein's and just listening to, to my words being read out loud. And I was like, this is way more powerful than I thought it would be. And now mm. I'm in Einstein's being emotional. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so Ray was a, was a really integral part of that, which I didn't expect at first. Um, but yeah, not, looking back on it, I realized how important he was in, in framing the way that scene worked and the way that that character came into existence. Wow. So uh, sadly, uh, Ray Watson <clears throat> was killed um, in late December uh, in, a, in a tragic car accident down in, in Illinois. And my understanding is that uh, in appreciation for uh, your friendship with Ray, and the role that Ray played in the shaping of this, that this play is dedicated to Ray Watson. Is that right? Yes. yes. I think that's a, a wonderful gesture uh, that uh, a lot of us very much deeply appreciate. So you are headed to Madison, and uh, are you expecting a similar sort of experience from that that you had in, in, uh, in uh, San Diego, or is it going to be different, do you think? I don't know. I'm I'm really trying not to put any any expectations on the experience, just so I'm open to everything. I'm hoping that it'll be different, um, just because you know it's it's valuable to get multiple different like th- thoughts on your on your work, um, and I'm I'm hoping that it'll be very different from San Diego, so that I can glean different things from both experiences. 
Um, Who will the performers be? Will they be strangers, or uh, are these they, performers from Carthage? They are Carthage theater students. Um, mm. I don't remember the full cast. I know Anna Brown is playing the main character. Um, I believe Mary Siegel is opposite her. And then the rest of the cast is uh, pulled from from other students that are going to the festival, because uh, the festival has so many different things going on. Um, and lots of students go every year for the Irene Ryan uh, nominations, or like it, which is a competition for actors. Um, a lot of students go for the music theater intensive. Uh, a lot of other students go for for the the tech Olympics and like the the technical uh, technical aspects of it, where they they learn from, they learn they go to master classes and they they work with professionals on the stage. Um, so lots of people are attending. And uh, Professor Sharnak Neal, he just pulled various students from the attendees and said, "Hey, would you be interested in doing this? Would you be interested in doing this?" Wow. So, yeah. Well, that is going to be exciting. Absolutely. And of course, presumably in the audience will be complete strangers, uh, but theater people attending this festival uh, who are going to be exposed to this play that you have have crafted. And then at some point, can we hope for some sort of reading at Carthage? Hopefully, yeah. Um, I I haven't spoken to Neil about it, but I I don't see why not. Um, uh, I know a couple of my friends were asking... Uh, about directing it or about acting in it, um, and I'm I'm game for whatever. You know, mm. <laughs> I'm I'm happy with with working on it as many times as possible. Sure. <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of people uh, hearing this conversation are intrigued to actually hear the play itself, and I assume that from here you hope that you're going to go on to write many more plays. I mean, is that that's, your hope? That, that's uh, that's the dream. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would really love to to be able to write and perform. And, and just do both. I mean, writing is my, my primary track at the moment because it just I just love it so much. Um, but I also really like to perform. So ideally in my future, I'll be able to do both. <laughs> mm. Well, you're off to a great start in both and uh, particularly as a playwright. And again, Wiretaps is about to receive a, a, uh, a reading at the Region 3 Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival uh, in Madison and a performance that will be uh, directed by Neil Sharnick and the playwright, Emma Swain. Emma Swain, I am so glad that uh, we arranged this for you to come to WGTD and tell the story of this play, and we certainly hope that uh, many more plays are going to uh, flow from your pen in the years (laughs) to come. And uh, thank you for being part of the morning show today. This was fun. Thank you for having me.